It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. So I, I was thinking about um, the year we've been doing the podcast. Yeah. I would say it's largely been a very harmonious time. They talk about it as the, the first true bromance of the 21st century. However, there has been the odd source of conflict. There was the time that you weren't following me on Twitter. Yep. And and that, you know, that was a difficult time for us, but we yep. got through it. Then there was the whole WhatsApp group fiasco. Yep. But we got through that, didn't we? Yep. Um, we've agreed to sweep it under the carpet. Yep. And now I think we face another one. It's potentially our, our most serious bump in the road. Right. Which is we've, something we've been talking about recently is the fact that Ed has abandoned his smartphone. Yep. So I've not been able to contact you on the phone for yep. well over a month. And um, when, when I've mentioned this with you, you said, yeah, I'm just using this old BlackBerry for yep. email. And Lindsay's looking after the phone. As you walked into my house this morning, I was you on were the phone on the to phone, Ringo. which is the local authority parking scheme rather than the Beetle. So it would seem to me that you have had a phone number all this time. You just haven't shared it with me. Yep. <laughs> How do you think that makes me feel? Well, the, okay, here's the theory of this, right? The yeah. theory of this was that yeah. the only two people who could have my number mm-hmm. were Justine, mm. my wife, mm. and Lindsay, mm. who runs my life, mm-hmm. um, because anything else was invidious. So I'm, nobody, I'm not invidious. So nobody else has my number. I'm not an invidious number. guy. But also, I think it's a te- because, as you know, I'm about to buy a different phone. No, you know, it's a temporary thing. So I didn't want to sort of send you down a blind alley. Of a no. number that I doesn't really. I would have been happy work. to use that number if you'd have said to me, "Here's a number that I'm just going to have for four or five weeks." I would have been happy to ring. Well, it wasn't that quite as well planned as that. What about when I'm having a dark night of the soul and I need somebody to call? Okay, well, I, you can have my number. <laughs> I can't you believe hands, you've been lying to me. Up. You've been lying to me. But hang I, on, obviously, you, I said I was using it as a phone. I mean, it's so obvious I was using it as a phone. Well, it was when you walked in talking no, into it this on, morning. Was, it was obvious that I was using it as a phone. I mean, you think I was just in denial. You think it was too painful for me to thought, acknowledge that you had the phone number. I don't think you quite thought it through. <laughs> right. Should we move on? Have you been watching The Bodyguard? Yeah. Are you enjoying it? Yeah, I am actually. I was. I had. I struggled a bit to get into it, but I am enjoying it. I'm only up to episode four, so don't sort of 
Did you ever have one of those um, people assigned to you? The, Did, you know, I, during the election, not a number of them, yeah, during the election, incredibly nice. Um, and how was your, is, is the relationship we see on screen, is that similar to the relationship you, you had with your PPO? <laughs> not totally true to life, I don't think, no. Right. But they were very, they were, they, were, they were nice. Before you walked in this morning on the phone with this phone number that you've yeah. been keeping for me, I thought, oh, we can talk about the, the Bodyguard yeah. TV show. And then I will say to Ed, I would take a bullet for you. But oh. I'm, I'm not sure that I would now after this whole debacle. Mm. Take a black brief for me. <laughs> right, should we move on? <laughs> okay, let, let's move on then. Um, what are we going to be talking about this week? We're going to be talking about the idea of economic justice and what it means and what we should be doing to make bring it about because it arises from a commission that the Institute for Public Policy Research, the IPPR, uh, came out with a couple of weeks ago. It was a diverse group, including Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And there's lots of really interesting ideas, some of which we've covered on the podcast, but some of which we haven't before. Um, and we're talking to uh, one of the commissioners and the director of the commission just about those ideas and how we make them happen. And we'll be joined by comedian Tanya Edwards, who's going to be suggesting some ideas, which, who knows, there could be potential reasons to be cheerful. And speaking of reasons to be cheerful, what's yours this week? So my reason to be cheerful this week is that I have a mixed record on birthday presents for my wife, but I bought her, with a little bit of a hint from her, but more my own initiative, a turntable for vinyl. That's a great present. And honestly, it really is a really good present because... And, and there's a sort of theory I've got about this, which I hadn't sort of properly realised. When we sort of listen to music at home, because it's so easy to flick around and, you know, if you've got a CD or if you've got something downloaded from the internet, it's just so easy to move on. Whereas there's something about vinyl that forces you, the, the, the sort of transaction costs of kind of taking off the record, putting on another one, are sufficiently high that you you'd listen to more of the record. So, you know... Without sort of treading over a previous offence, George Ezra sent me a copy of oh, his. God, uh, sorry, I mentioned the staying bit, at Tamara's. The three rifts. There's, there's yeah, another one. Yeah. There's four. Uh, he yeah. sent me a copy of Staying at Tamara's, which is his record. It's fantastic, and and you know, you know, Justin really likes his song Paradise, but it just sort of meant we listened to the whole record. Mm. And I, I thought I hadn't really realised this about records. I mean, it was rather stupid of me not to have realised it. It's a lovely tactile experience, though. Putting tactile, thing, exactly. Putting the thing onto the turntable, exactly. taking the arm, putting exactly. the needle onto the record, sitting there and holding the sleeve while you're listening to yeah. it, having a look so at do the you artwork. Listen to, do you? I've, I've got a turntable up there. I seldom yeah. do. I went through a phase of obsessively buying songs yeah. that I used to have on seven-inch vinyl when I was young. So, what 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 other records have you got then? Well, we don't have that many. So we, we've got the George Ezra. Um, we've got a Beatles. We've got uh, what? Else? We bought an Amy Winehouse. So, so we've got a few, but not. No, we've got a Josh Ritter. Josh Ritter. Do you know Josh Ritter? Yeah, yeah. He sent me actually his record because I chose him for my Desert Island Discs um, and uh, the previous album. So we've got some, but we're going to collect more. Wow. Anyway, so it's definitely a reason to be cheerful. Well, happy birthday, belatedly, to Justine. Yeah. And what's yeah. your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is... Um, this is an exclusive. It's an exclusive. Live so, and exclusive. So it's my wedding anniversary this week. It's, happy it's anniversary. It's my fifth wedding anniversary. That, what is that? Wood. Wood. So I've got to find a present for my right. wife made out of wood. Yeah. But I was also thinking that what I might do tomorrow... 
uh, before my wedding anniversary is change my name by deed poll. So when we got married, my wife didn't take my surname, not because she doesn't love me, but because she doesn't respect me. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, anyway, so she's so she is Sarah Barron. Yeah. Would you like me to take your surname to make up? To make my it, yes, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where should just change my name to Jeff? <laughs> okay, yeah, do do that. Yeah, just Jeffs are dying out. Not many babies have Jeff been called Miliband. Jeff. Yeah, yeah. Or so Ed Lloyd yeah. Miliband. I think Justine might think it was a bit peculiar, but anyway. Yeah. So our son has her name Baron yeah. as a middle name. So I was thinking, why don't I do the same? I've never had a middle name. I've always felt envious of people with middle names. Why don't I take Baron as a middle name? So I think in advance of my wedding anniversary, I'm going to go and change my name by deed poll. And my suggestion, humble suggestion, is that actually you don't go for that order, but you call yourself Baron Jeff Lloyd. And and my response and to that. You know, you know Baron means you're in the House of Lords, and I know it's Baron with a double R, but you're kind of close enough. Yeah. You could even call yourself Baron Jeff Lloyd of Stoke Newington. <laughs> and then you could actually stand as a parliamentary candidate somewhere for, like, the Monster Raving Looney Party. <laughs> <laughs> because if you're Baron Jeff Lloyd of Stoke Newington with a double R, you're definitely in the business. You see, I, I, think, you're, I think you're taking my lovely romantic gesture of having my wife's surname as a, as a middle name and you're, you're thinking it's just all about the lols. No, but come on, Jeff what Barron... I mean, come on, you've just okay. said I should be standing for the monster no. raving loony okay. party. But Jeff Barron Lloyd or Baron Jeff Lloyd, which, like, makes more sort of, you know... <laughs> We'd have to change all the jingles on the podcast. Ed Miliband and Baron Jeff Lloyd. <laughs> I think it's quite good. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're joined now by Michael Jacobs, who is director of the IPPR Commission on Economic Justice, and Sarah Bryson, who is a commissioner on the Commission on Economic Justice and is an organiser at Citizens UK, Tyne and Weir. Thank you both for joining us. Good morning. Thank you very much. Maybe we can just start off with a, a kind of very basic question, which is, what is economic justice? Because it's got a very specific name, the Commission. What, what, what does it mean? We meant uh, by calling this Commission the Commission on Economic Justice that you can't have an economy which benefits only a proportion of its population, and in particular, only its upper half. If you look at the way our economy has been delivering the rewards of economic growth over the last 30 years, they've almost all gone to the top half of the population in income terms. And the bottom third have barely shared in that growth at all, and the middle section only a bit. And so for us, economic justice was saying that you can't think of an economy without thinking about who gets its rewards. And we have to run an economy such that the poorest people in society and those on middle incomes gain a fair share of its rewards. And we actually set out some principles. So, for example, it's not just about income distribution, but about distribution amongst other groups. Um, an economy is not just if men do better out of it than women, which is systematically the case, if white people do better than ethnic minorities, if London and the South East do better than the rest of the country. So it's writing into the very way in which we think about the economy its sense of fairness. So governments traditionally look, just looked at the headline growth number and thought, well, it's growing, it's fine, we're happy. And, and so have economists. They have taken aggregates and averages. And for a long time, that was not a bad rule of thumb, because uh, in the period, for example, after the Second World War till around the mid-1970s, the economy got fairer. So most of those rewards did go to the bottom half of the population. That became less and less true after the 1970s. And in the last 10 years, it's been not true at all. So we've had economic growth, but it's not 
gone into rising earnings for the majority of the population. And this is the first time in the recorded history that growth and average earnings have been decoupled. We've had wage stagnation now for over a decade while there's been growth. That is symptomatic of an economy that is fundamentally not working. And Sarah, tell us about your thoughts about economic justice and and your reason for joining this commission, because you obviously work uh, as a grassroots community organiser with people on the ground, people who are right at the sharp end of these issues. Yeah, that's right. And I guess I joined because I grew up in poverty myself, so I know firsthand what it's like to be at the receiving end of economic injustice. And now that I'm nearly 40, working with communities and seeing that The poverty they experience is worse than that that even I grew up with as a kid. And thinking that we need to do something radically different. And how do we get to a position where we get that kind of radical rethink of the economy? So joining a a commission or a think tank is not the usual kind of thing that a community organiser would do. But I was uh, attracted to it because the commissioners came from a wide range of backgrounds and despite that, everyone sitting around the table agreed that we needed radical reform and were up for thinking about radical change. And I, that excited me because we're at a time of quite a divided country with people of different political persuasions, different sides of the Brexit debate. How do we unite pre- people to really get real change that will impact on the people that I work with on a day-to-day basis. And it just felt like there was a real energy and that it was very timely 10 years after the economic crisis to to kind of bring people together to do some of that thinking. And before we get into the detail of the report, it was quite a wide-ranging commission, wasn't it? It was chaired by the Archbishop of Canterbury and he got, Justin Welbin, he got a lot of attention when the report was launched, but it was also had business people. That was a deliberate decision, Michael, was it? Yes, it wasn't actually chaired by the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was just our, you know, our best best advocate in the media. And and it was very brave of him to go out on a limb. It's very easy for for public figures, particularly in the church, to kind of um, say vague things about morality and ethics. And he was willing to go out and say, you can't just say vague things, you've got to actually will the means and you have to do that through the economy. But there were members uh, on the commission who came from business, so several business leaders, including the managing partner of McKinsey and Company, huge global business, um, people from the city. So Helena Morrissey was one of the most um, pr- uh, prominent investors in the city of London. In- incidentally, she was a Brexiteer. So we had people from both sides of the Brexit debate in this, um, ranging to Francis O'Grady, the general secretary of the TUC, and Sarah, who kept us honest with actually understanding what it's like for people uh, at the sharp end. And that breadth is why I think this report is much more significant than what would normally come out of a think tank, because it isn't just the think tankers saying this. It's a very wide range of people. Should we talk about the ideas in the report and just what what, what you consider the most important? Why don't, why don't we just start off with each of you saying, Sarah, maybe you want to go first, just saying, you know, because obviously there's, it's packed full of lots of ideas and, and we should cover you know the, the most important ones. But, but what for you is the most important thing about the report, the most important proposal? Yeah, well, obviously the report's got over 70 recommendations and there's no silver bullet in there. And I think it's taken in its entirety that will bring the kind of changes that we're after. But for me, really, the key thing was about wages. Because in the northeast, obviously, we have record levels of employment across the country, but also up here. Yet we have stagnating wages while the cost of living continues to rise. And that means that we're in a very different place right now. So most people are working but can't afford to make ends meet. 
number one reason people use a food bank is low pay. People having two or three jobs. I was talking to someone yesterday who's a security guard in a, a big, well-known university, but can't afford transport costs to work, has to walk to work. So those kind of issues, I think, are really at the heart of economic injustice in the moment. So I don't think it's that radical, really, to say that no one should be working and not afford to live. Um, really, what we were looking at was the basic premise that people should earn a living wage and that if you're working, you should be able to afford to live. But also alongside that, looking at maybe why wages are so low and thinking about the need for greater trade union involvement in bargaining and how we can look at the change in nature of work and support people to more easily join trade unions so that they can they can fight for better paying conditions. And just to be specific, I've just got the executive summary in front of me. Your, the proposal was to raise the national living wage to the level of the real living wage based on the actual cost of living. And that's, I think, over £10. Is that right in London? In London, uh, some, uh, a little bit less than that in, uh, in the yeah. rest of the country. You know, we have something that the government, um, in a bit of slate of hand, called the living wage, but yeah. isn't the living wage. And, and, you know, the minimum wage should enable somebody to live and not be in poverty and not have to go to a food bank that is as sarah says that's hardly a radical demand but it isn't the way the economy is organized at the moment and did you have any pushback from the business people because the traditional business argument has been well this will cost jobs and you've got to be careful and etc etc no we didn't and for a very important reason that we set out in the report which is that um, at the moment it is just too easy to employ somebody on the minimum wage and of course young people earn much less than the adult minimum wage we think that they, we should get rid of the, the, the young people's uh, differential um, and that keeps productivity low so we have this tremendous problem of productivity which is much lower productivity than most of our European uh, partners and that's because it's so cheap it's one of the reasons it's so cheap to employ people on an extra hours wage and so when we talked to business about this we said we need you to improve your productivity. And if we get you to pay higher wages, you will have to improve your productivity because that's the only way to pay higher wages. And most businesses accepted that was the case. Now, we have a little compensating mechanism in the report. So we say for businesses that are really at the sharp end and will struggle to do that, and some of them are social care businesses, yeah. who, of course, will just that money will have to come out of the public sector. Um, we will give you three years in which we will compensate you for the higher minimum wage by reducing your national insurance contributions on those low wage employees, but only three years. And within that three year period, you've got to improve your productivity to enable you to pay those higher wages. And the businesses we spoke to said, that's a fair deal, we can do that. Why is British productivity so low compared to other European countries? There are two primary reasons. One is that it's become so easy to employ people now on such cheap con uh, conditions. So in the gig economy, there are nearly a million people now, that's nearly 3% of the workforce, in, who are on zero-hours contracts, slightly under a million. That's risen from 168,000 10 years ago. That's much more than other European countries. So our gig economy is much, much bigger as a proportion of our economy. And that means for an employer, you've got no social security contributions, no benefits at all. You can simply employ somebody on an extra hour or an extra little piece of work. Why then invest in equipment, in machinery, in compute, even in even in selling online, if you can do it that cheaply, the second uh, uh, reason is that our firms seem to not utilise the skills of their own workers. So we have the highest proportion in Europe of workers who are employed at below their skill level. We often talk about the skills problem, and it's said we don't produce enough 
skilled workers, that's true. But we also don't use the skilled workers we already have because firms are not investing in their own workforces. So we need to do more investment in equipment and in, and in our people and our workers and drive productivity. And we said, let's push wages up from the bottom and let's get firms to do that in order to pay those higher wages. We've talked about wages T- tell us what else you think is important in the report. And I know it's hard to pick out. From well, I, but I, I, I think it's the overall argument we make in a sense that, that it, people need to understand, as Sarah says, over 70 recommendations. None of them is the silver bullet. Yeah. There isn't a single thing that needs yeah. to be done. We argue, on the contrary, that the economy needs what we call fundamental reform. And fundamental reform means an integrated package of reform across a whole range of areas. The key underlying argument is that a fairer economy will be a stronger economy. This is called the Commission on Economic Justice, but our report is called Prosperity and Justice. And we argue that prosperity and justice go together. They have to go hand in hand. And once upon a time, it used to be thought that you traded off a more a fairer society, more egalitarian uh, economy with growth. The international evidence is now that that is simply wrong. All the work that the OECD, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation Development, the Developed Countries Club, the International Monetary Fund and others have done, is that fairer economies produce better, more stable growth. And there are good reasons for this. If you pay um, more money to people at the bottom of the income distribution, they tend to spend it more than people at the top. You tend to save money. You get more stable financial regimes because you've got less money from the rich going into chasing uh, assets and so on. You don't have the social costs that go with inequality. We know societies which are very unequal have high social costs in mental health, in, in, in physical health, in policing and so on. So for a whole variety of reasons, it's now clear that fairer economies are stronger economies. But... The second part of that argument is you have to then hardwire justice into the way the economy works. You can't redistribute after the event. The well, in- I once called to much derision pre-distribution. Indeed. And you it got- was an ugly term, which I think you've avoided. We, have, avoid- we have avoided the... the I haven't that- done a word search, but I think it's <laughs> we, probably not in there. We have avoided it, but we've used the same evidence yeah. that you drew on. Um, and the problem is that the deep inequalities that we now have, not just in income but in wealth, arise from the core structures of the economy. They arise in the labour market, where, as Sarah says, workers have lost a massive amount of bargaining power over the last 30 years, so wages are low even though we have high... Uh, employment rates in the structure of corporate governance where our corporate governance models are entirely based on the interests of shareholders and not of their workers and and so on in the structures of land ownership of share ownership and so on so you have to get to the core structures of the economy and make sure that they are fair and we call that hardwiring justice into the way the economy works and when we think about how we we got to here we often hear about this country that we we don't make stuff like we used to and the, the growth in the economy has come from financial financial services. Is, is that true of other comparable European, uh, European countries? Is this a problem that ex- exists across Europe? The trend towards a decline of manufacturing as a proportion of your whole economy is pretty universal. And that's because um, over time, more and more of what we want are services and because manufacturing takes fewer and fewer people as it gradually becomes automated. But it's gone much further in the UK than it has in other uh, countries. So Even, why is that? And that's well, there are a whole variety of reasons. One of them is that our financial sector has become so large that it started having an impact on the rest of the economy. We have a very, very large financial sector which provides lots of jobs, lots of export um, uh, income, um, uh, and uh, and is a major contributor to tax revenues. But it also has kept our 
pound sterling much higher than it should have been given the rest of our economy, and that has impacted on our manufacturing sectors. So our manufacturing sectors have found it quite hard to compete in a world in which the financial sector has become so dominant. So we need a rebalancing there. The other thing you'd have to say is if you look at the geography of the UK, most of our manufacturing was outside London and the South East, and we've had this intense in a concentration of investment, not just in the private sector, but the public sector in London and the South East. And we've had no regional government, so we've not had the proper support of industrial areas in the Midlands, in the North, in Wales, in Scotland, even Northern Ireland. And so we also argue that you need much stronger regional and national government to counter that concentration of investment in this London and the South East. Sarah, let's come back to you. We, you. We've talked about wages. Michael's talked about the overall argument of the report. What else do you, do, do you it really matters to you and to the people that you, you're working with, do you think, in this? I think, like I say, the stuff around trade unions and if you look at the way most people are employed, especially in the gig economy, zero hour contracts or like the push towards self-employment, you don't get to join a trade union in the same way that you would have um, 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, my parents' generation, it was just the thing you did. You got a job, you were there for a long time, you joined a trade union. So looking at can we have things like auto-enrollment for trade unions? So it's something that people opt out of. Um, looking at the models that have been used around pensions, for example, um, to support those workers who are in much more precarious employment to enable them to have better representation. And that is part of the report, isn't it, Michael? The, the, the notion that how so who runs the economy if you like you know i proposed when i was running um to be prime minister a worker on every remuneration committee you've gone significantly further i think at least two workers on every board of, of a certain companies of a certain size say a little bit more just to add to what sarah said about about that part of this as sarah says the core one of the core arguments is about giving workers greater bargaining power over their own wages and conditions, um, uh, and a variety of mechanisms to do that, some of them regulatory, some of them through trade unions, uh, greater collective bargaining. Within companies, we think that workers should play a more important role. We're very unusual in the UK. It, it applies in the US as well. But most European countries recognise that companies are groups of stakeholders. They're not just their shareholders. Shareholders are very important, but workers are important too. And workers tend to have a much longer term relationship with their companies than shareholders do. The average length that a share is now held is only six months, whereas workers, the average tenure is four or five years. Um, and so workers ought to be recognised within the structure of companies. So we say, and of course, we're not the first to say this, there should be workers on the boards of all companies, both public and private, that are larger than 250 employees. And they should also be represented on remuneration committees. One of the reasons that people feel the economy is so unfair is that they've seen executive salaries race away not just from ordinary people's salaries 20 30 years ago the difference between the chief executive salary and the average worker in their company was 20 to 1 it's now 129 to 1 but completely out of all proportion to the performance of the companies it's not like these executives are being rewarded for how wonderful their companies are this is simply unfair and we think and the a major reason for that is in the corporate governance arrangements, if you look at remuneration committees which set the salaries of executives, they're made up of other executives from other companies. And that is almost corrupt. We think putting workers on those committees would be a way of re restraining that uh, what is effectively corporate greed. So you have to put these into the structures of the way the economy works. This would be quite unprecedented for Britain, wouldn't it, to have this this 
structure of companies where workers play, play this role. I mean, that isn't saying it's wrong, it's, but it's, it's quite a big departure. It's a change for the UK, but it's normal in the rest of Europe. And um, this is why this report, although it sounds radical, almost everything proposed in it has been done somewhere else and rather successfully. So we propose a national investment bank. Never been done in the UK. Well, in fact, it has. It was a small green investment bank until uh, the government sold it off. But Germany has a huge national investment bank, which has been a major part of Germany's growth model over the last uh, 50 years. Um, we propose regional government in England. Well, almost every industrialised country has a regional tier of government. We propose workers on boards. Most of Europe has workers on boards. We propose stronger trade unions. Actually, Germany, Sweden, Denmark, very successful economies have stronger trade unions. So, yeah, it looks radical for the UK. So partly you're saying it's common sense. It is common sense, and that's one of the reasons why so many people have actually looked at this report from right across the political spectrum and says, well, I actually agree with quite a lot of that. Um, and our proposals on taxation are similar. You know, tax is such a toxic subject in British politics. We make some what look like quite radical proposals on tax, but actually they're being supported right across the political spectrum. Which what is kind of proposals? Well, so, for example, we say that taxes on the income that comes from wealth... So if you own land or shares or other forms of wealth and you get income from it, dividends and interest payments and so on, that income should be taxed at the same rates as the rest of us pay tax on income from work. That's a pretty straightforward principle. Whereas at the moment, if you make capital gains... It's taxed at a lower yeah. rate than income tax from work. Now, that's simply not fair. It obviously benefits the richest people in society, or the people who own shares and land and so on. It's, it's a very bad principle of taxation to an economist, which is why the last people who uh, supported the equalisation of those tax rates were Margaret Thatcher and Nigel Lawson. And when you say to a Conservative, is it fair? Most of them say... No, it's not fair. So let's change that. Another example is the taxation of multinational corporations. We all now know that multinational corporations shift their profits around in order to pay the lowest rates of tax. So amazingly, Google and Amazon and others find themselves earning most of their profits in Ireland or Liechtenstein and not in the UK. But we know they have massive operations in the UK. Everybody knows that is a scam. And we're speaking on the day, by the way, in which the front of the FG says that Starbucks, European businesses, paid 2.8% UK tax last year. Precisely. I mean, that's quite a low tax rate, it seems to me. And it's a bit lower than you and I pay. And people just think this is unfair. And you know who, who most thinks it's unfair is British-based businesses who can't move their profits around because they're not multinationals, who end up paying higher rates of tax effectively because the multinationals are taking... Um, are taking us all for a ride. So we say in the report, let's have a what we call an alternative minimum corporation tax. If a company has declared low or zero profits for five years in succession in the UK, we'll put a new tax on them, which taxes their UK sales at their uh, global profitability rate. And if in fact they have made no profits, then they can open their books to HMRC and prove it, and then they can be taxed whatever it is they uh, ought to be. Sarah, one of the other proposals which has been eye-catching in the report, and we've covered it on the podcast, is this idea of £10,000 to, I think, every young person at the age of 25. Just talk to us a bit about this from your perspective. You obviously work with young people, you work with lots of people in poverty who certainly don't have any assets, don't have any savings. What kind of difference do you think that would make? Well, obviously, one of the big things we talked about a lot in the commission was about young people, because probably for the first time in my lifetime, people don't think that their children are going to have a better life than they had. They're not expecting to be able to afford to get on the housing ladder. They're 
the debt that they're burdened with from going to university and so on. Um, so young people, what do we do? How do we bridge that inequality that exists between the younger generation and the older one? And so this is an idea just to try and help level the playing field a bit, that when you get to 18, if you don't have a bank of mum and dad who can help you either pay for your university education or get you on the housing market or, or whatever it is, how do we do something about that? So again, it's not a panacea in and of itself. We're not saying giving 10 grand to young people will solve the injustice or the inequalities in society, but we're saying it's one step, it's one thing among many others that would help some of our young people to to get a start in life because if you look at the inequalities that exist around access to education or jobs or travel or housing then you know we need to do something at a much sooner age than we are currently in order to try and kind of tackle those inequalities. I wonder if we should talk now about the because you've, you've both outlined very eloquently the the contents of the report what happens now I suppose is my question <laughs> because you know, this is a very comprehensive piece of work, but we all know the sort of report disease, which is a report is produced, gets coverage, and then it sort of sits on a shelf. Maybe you can just both say what you hope might happen now with the report. Yeah, I think it's provoked a lot of discussion and debate that we weren't having before. But really, for me, it's about some of the things in the report we can act upon. So obviously, I'm going to say that in the northeast, you know, there's already 4,000 employers have chosen to pay the, the real living wage. And that's a big um, campaign for us in the northeast. So we're working with a lot of employers at the moment to say, you know, don't wait around for policy changes. This is something you can do. Um, the Smith Institute just did some research in Newcastle, and they showed that if 25% of employers in Newcastle paid the real living wage, that would bring in £29 million to the local economy right now. So that's something that we're, we're working towards, trying to get at least 25% of employers here to, to do that. And that's obviously a really important focus of Citizens UK's work, isn't it? For those who don't know, Citizens UK, you know, first sort of came up with the idea, talked about the idea of the living wage probably 10 or 15 years ago when, you know, nobody was paying the living wage. And now we've got thousands of companies across Britain that have become living wage employers. You know, that is about grassroots change, which isn't necessarily about government. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, Citizens UK doesn't call on government to do anything. We just work in employer with employers locally to get them to to see the benefits and to do the right thing and to take that leadership role in their localities because it makes a huge difference to local economies and that's something that all of us can be can be doing right now um i also think that there's huge opportunities like in the northeast we're about to have a regional mayor so we're going to have a north of Tyne combined authority covering Newcastle, North Tyneside, Northumberland. And the key plan that they're looking at for that combined authority is um, inclusive growth. And there's huge opportunities for us to have discussions about what aspects of the report they could implement locally that would truly lead to inclusive growth. So that's something that we will be following up on in the coming months. 
So I'm really hoping that some of the ideas in this will be taken up by actors who are not central government. So mayors uh, in particular. Um, there's just been a convention of the north where all the mayors and city council leaders uh, and county councils and so on in the north have come together. There's an agenda here of regional development and industrial strategy which doesn't need to wait for central government. But the bigger ambition we have, and uh, and it is a it's a big ambition, is to change the conversation about what. Uh, how our economy is performing and what we need to do to change it. Um, and that conversation needs to happen wherever it can. It happened on the front of the Daily Mail when the report came out. So this was rather remarkable, that the Daily Mail, um, under a new editor, thought this is important, the economy is not working, they can see that, we ought to be championing new ideas. And they said that they didn't agree with all the recommendations, but they recommended in their leader and one of their major writers, Peter Oborn, who's you know really quite a, a well-known right-wing commentator, saying there is a lot in this that I agree with. And for us, getting people right across the political spectrum, yourself, Ed, um, people in the Labour Party, John McDonald called it a new beverage report. Me, you, Jeff, uh, Vince Cable came out in favour of it. Yeah. Um, Caroline Lucas tweeted in support of it. Nicola Sturgeon did. Um, the FT leader liked it. The Economist liked it. Uh, and the Daily Mail. Um, getting this wide range of people to argue for it or argue that its analysis needs to be listened to is part of what we call the paradigm shift. And, you know, I said earlier, we are calling for fundamental reform. That may sound like pie in the sky, but fundamental reform has happened before, twice in the last hundred years. So after the Great Depression of the 1930s, the whole basis of economic thinking changed and then economic policy changed with the advent of what we now know as Keynesian economics, the post-war consensus, which everybody agreed with. So very quickly a new radical theory of the economy and of what we should do in economic policy became the orthodoxy, the consensus. That lasted for about 30 years. And then in the 1970s, we had a kind of breakdown, not as dramatic as the Great Depression of the 30s, but nevertheless, the oil price shock, what was known as stagflation, which was simultaneous inflation and employment, basically meant that the post-war consensus broke down. And then we had another round of radical fundamental reform, which was the free market reforms of Margaret Thatcher in the UK, Ronald Reagan in the US, which you may not have agreed with, but nevertheless changed the way we thought about economic policy. And within 10 years had basically been accepted by everybody right across the political spectrum. Those two things are what social scientists would call paradigm shifts. The whole body of thinking changes. Now, what we're saying is that 10 years after the great financial crash of 2008, we need another fundamental reform. We have got serious problems in our economy, which the old way of thinking have not been able to deal with, as we've seen over the last 10 years. We need fundamental reform. And if that paradigm shift occurs, you will see it being supported right across the political spectrum, not simply by one wing of it. And that's what this rather remarkable degree of welcome of the report I think signifies that lots of people right across the spectrum can see that we have fundamental problems and we need fundamental reform to deal with them and so for us this is about changing the whole conversation that economy conversation going on in government departments in academic departments on podcasts like your own and in ordinary people's discussions in the pub and around the kitchen table we publish this as a book it's available in bookshops you can also read it online for nothing we are going to go out over the next year to take this report out into public debate wherever we can find it, all around the country. The Friends Provident Foundation, which is one of the supporters of the Commission, has funded us now to do that. That is fantastic. We want this to change the way we talk about the economy. Finally, for both of you, since the sort of theme of this is it's not just about sort of letting the report gather dust on a shelf, you know, um, people can download the report from your website, people can read it. 
What else would you urge people to do? Sarah, let's start with you. I mean, you know, feel free to do a plug for people joining citizens. Um, but, but, you know, because I think some people will be very fired up by this conversation, hopefully. You know, what can they go out and do now? Get involved in your local community and organise yourselves. Um, you know, we, you can come together with others and make a difference. And I think the, the fundamental thing everyone should do is if you're an employer, you should become an accredited living wage employer. If you're not an employer, you should speak to your employer about it. But I think that this is a way of uniting the country. I really do. If you look at the Sky data polling that um, IPPR did when the report came out, the general public also believe that the economy is not working well. And regardless of whether they leave or remain supporters or their political persuasion, they support the recommendations in this um, report. And I just think at a time of, of great division and tension in our communities, this is something that will bring lots of different people together. So, you know, don't just mourn, come together and organise around these issues. And the report gives a really great roadmap for where people can start. I completely agree with that. Talk about it. Read the report. Read the summary if the whole report is a bit too long um, or the first half of the report and talk about it. Talk about it in an organised way. Organise a discussion about it in whatever organisations or groups that you belong to or simply with your your friends and family let's get everybody accepting the core argument here which is that there is an alternative what we have now doesn't work and we can change it the fatalism that surrounds people's view of the economy is the real enemy of change people's belief which was once a kind of mantra of politicians that there is no alternative that the world is just as it is that's not true and this report shows how you could change it so let's just talk about it in every possible way form forum that you can and then lastly, write to your MP. You wouldn't, you'd be surprised, and I hope, Eddie, you will back this up, the extent to which MPs do listen to their post bags or their email bags. And if all of them realise that people are talking about this report and so on, they will realise that they have to do something about it themselves. And in the end, you have to make change from the top down and the bottom up, from citizens from the bottom and from our political leaders from the top. OK, Michael and Sarah, that was really inspiring. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. So what do you think? I mean, I just think there's so many good ideas yep. in this report. And um, although we talk about it being a new paradigm, actually, a lot of these ideas are things that exist and have existed for a long time in other countries with successful and more balanced economies. And if we are at a point where we start thinking about our economy in that way, then great, right? And I think in a way that's it's kind of when I listening to that discussion, you know, I was thinking that is really the point of why you set up the podcast, isn't it? Why yeah. it was that was why you had the original idea. Um, because, you know, it's about ideas like that. And actually, I think the fact that across the spectrum, people weren't political spectrum, people weren't just dismissive of it is actually definitely a reason to be cheerful. Definitely. If you've got the Daily Mail um, endorsing some of the ideas that we're talking about in this episode, then we're headed in the right direction. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So a lot of exciting ideas in this week's podcast, and it'd be great to hear your thoughts on the policy proposals that this report has put forward. And also, if you've got any ideas for for getting them out there. But, but also, I, I think 
crucially, I mean, maybe on the deed poll question, you should like wait a week and we should like do it like the Brexit referendum. <laughs> we should sort of get, you know, our listeners to say what you should change your name to. We're going to Baron miss, Jeff we'll, Lloyd, we'll miss Jeff, ba- we'll Jeff Baron Lloyd, we'll or something completely different. Look, pe- people might think of a like a, com- you know, a new combination, uh, you know, Bloyd is, or Is there a limit on Baroid Is there or a limit on how many, that sounds like hemorrhoids. <laughs> okay. Something well, okay, that's why I need some sort of, you know, wisdom of crowds. <laughs> but is, is there a limit on how many times you can change your name by deed poll? I don't know. No. I know a guy called James Ward yeah. who tried to change his name by deed poll to James Ward. So basically his feeling was he hadn't chosen his own name. It's just something that had been dumped upon him. But he liked the name James Ward, but he wanted a sense of um, yeah, ownership of it. And what did they say? They said no. Well, I don't blame them. Maybe you can make the change, but then if someone comes up with something better, will you agree to... What has gone on in this podcast where I am asking the listeners for ideas on economic justice and you're trying to start a referendum on whether I should change my name to Barroyd? You could do it as a Twitter poll. Should I call myself (laughs) Jeff Barron Lloyd or Baron Jeff Lloyd? (laughs) All right, shall we get into some of these emails? This comes from Henrik Grape. Subject line is thanks from a Swede who says, Hi, many times you point out Sweden as the best country in the world, leading on climate and gender issues, etc. To some extent, this is true, but there's still a lot to do and might be trickier now after the election with a far right wing party getting 17.5% of the votes, which um, isn't great, but there were fears it was going to be more than that, more like 25%. Um, He continues, I've been working with climate issues in the Church of Sweden and international ecumenical organisations for more than a decade and attended the nearly all the um, COPs. What are the COPs? Co- COPs, Conference of the Parties, which is where all the world gets together to discuss climate change. He says uh, he only missed one doing. since 2006, and uh, planning for the next one in Poland this December. We have been active in the divestment movement, divest out of fossil industry from churches, and the Church of Sweden fully divested in 2014, and I think the Church of England are doing something similar, but not going all the way. Uh, it would be interesting to listen to a podcast where you discuss the moral stroke ethic and maybe more existential parts of climate challenges my opinion is that the urgency to act um needs the full understanding of what is life together on earth and driving forces must come from a sort of existential narrative that takes us over the resistance to change uh, he also adds, why not make a trip to Sweden and record a podcast with some Swedes? With You've had this idea of reasons yeah, to be Swedish. You re- rang the embassy and they gave you a short shrift. Well, yeah, I got in touch with the embassy and they put me on to the people who deal with, I guess, like Sweden tourism or yeah. something. And I said, how about we could come yeah. to Sweden and highlight some of the good reasons ideas? To be Swedish, yeah. Yeah. And um, they, they said, don't call us. No, they replied. Um, uh, dear George, uh, this isn't something we'd be interested in. <laughs> dear George. That's not good, is it? No, I'm not changing my name by default to George. No. So I just re- replied, it was a bit aggressive really, but I just replied with a two word, it's Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jeff Baron Lloyd. Maybe if you'd been called Baron Jeff Lloyd, it might have... Been, Baron you might, George you, Lloyd. You might have got a further. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, uh, if Henrik's got some connections to the Swedish sort of higher-ups, maybe he can yeah. help. We'd love to come to Sweden. This is from Catherine Conway. Uh, she's the director of Unpackaged Innovation Limited. I'm a new listener to the podcast. I thought it would be too much like my day job, aka mainly worrying about environmental catastrophe, but it's really, really enjoyable. Particularly enjoyed the renewables discussion last week. We don't pay enough attention to the vested interests that stop all the good things from happening fast enough. 
I haven't been and checked all previous episodes, sorry, to see if you've already done it, but I can offer my services to an episode on packaging. I think it could be really interesting. It's such a hot topic at the moment, thanks to Blue Planet. And there's both really interesting innovation work going on, as well as some dinosaurs in the industry refusing to change. Our focus on unpackage is on switching people from single use to reuse rather than anti-plastic per se. There's lots of interesting people that could join the chat. Uh, keep up the good work. Catherine, we will bear it in mind. Thank you very much. Uh, and then also we've got a suggestion on a future topic from Cecily C. She is from Guadeloupe. She is in Guadeloupe, in fact. Congratulations on your first year of podcasts. I discovered you through Jeff's Adrift podcast and think the shows are getting better and better. After last week's episode, I immediately downloaded the food sharing app Olio, but sadly no one in a 2,000 kilometer radius of me has it yet. <laughs> if there's anyone else in Guadeloupe, uh, please do join Olio. Uh, I've been especially impressed by recent guests Karen McCluskey and Phil Wang. In the vein of Wang's idea that homophobes shouldn't be allowed to use computers, I wonder what your thoughts were on putting people without donor cards to the back of the queue. Should they need an organ transplant themselves? Would you consider doing a show about organ donation and the new opt-out system hopefully coming into place in England by 2020? Yeah, I'm amazed that hasn't happened yet. I remember um, under Gordon Brown there so. were talks of it happening, but it, it is now coming in anyway it's fine. i'm very proud of having listeners uh oh, i'm sure you are too far and wide and uh, remember do send us your thoughts including on jeff's name email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com follow us on twitter at cheerful podcasts or search for our facebook page reasons to be cheerful podcast hi this is craig robinson from ways to win And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. And here to pitch some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. We're joined by comedian Tanya Edwards. Hello. Hi. Thank Hello. you very much for having me. Well, thanks for coming. And we were just talking about your Edinburgh show. You're back from Edinburgh uh, for a few weeks now, I guess. And, and the title of the show was... Totally irrelevant to the show. It's not my dog. And then that prompted Ed to like show you a video clip on his iPad. He got very excited. The Inspector Clouseau, there's a sort of famous thing where he says, does your dog bite? And the guy says, no. And then he gets bitten by the dog and he says, it's not my dog. Yeah, it's had a profound impact on A on profound me, impact. Yeah. I remembered it. Uh, so Tanya, you're here to, uh, to pitch us some ideas. What's, what's your first one? There should be a, another referendum, but the referendum should be on whether or not there should have been a referendum in the first place. <laughs> oh, interesting. I, I don't think... Um, People would necessarily change how they felt about Brexit, but I think everyone could agree they shouldn't have been given a chance to think about it in the first place. It is interesting that my constituency is a very pro-Brexit constituency, but talking to some of the people who voted for Brexit, they were saying to me, we wish we hadn't been given the vote. Yeah, I think that's because I, I really don't think anyone would change their mind. I think there's a lot of problems with the EU and I think there's a lot of good things about it. But I, I think everyone is really over. <laughs> Everyone's over the whole discussion and they're not quite convinced we can pull it off. I wonder if anyone's done a poll on the should there have been a referendum referendum It's question. a good one. So would your referendum on the referendum on the whether we should have had the referendum, would it be a legally binding referendum? Yes. Not an advisory referendum? No, it would be a legally binding, automatic it, disabandon all plans. What if, the, oh, I see. So in other words, it's a so way if, of if saying sort of... Just pretend it didn't happen. Because so we it's all not make, a sort of hypothetical, it's not a sort of hypothetical should there have been a referendum 
as a matter of interest. But it's not a referendum on the result of the referendum. No, no, it's not no, a referendum so, on the it, referendum itself. Yeah, I see. so you basically could completely still think that the EU is terrible and that we should leave. I see. And possibly want to leave later. But you would just agree that for the moment we're probably not ready. I think if you said that means we're cancelling Brexit, I'm not sure it would win. But I think if you said just as a matter of interest, should we have had a referendum, people yeah. would say no. no. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we'll have that one. What Great. else have you got, Tanya? It went better than I thought. Being offended by anything should disqualify you from further comment. Really? Yeah. So uh, if you are allowed any opinion on anything, you can discuss any idea. But being offended I'm, by someone else's opinion means you can't come really, around. That's really offensive. So, so because because you've just basically said that you no longer feel rational about this conversation, you're too emotional to engage in it. Then you, I am. I'm. I'm, I'm yeah. finding myself very offended. By yeah. That so idea. you can't discuss it anymore. We can have a chat. About right. Okay. It. You when carry you, on. When you've relaxed. Okay. Fine. Then you're allowed to discuss the you idea. Carry on. I'll us. practice some mindfulness. The idea that you're more qualified to talk about something because you're upset about it should just go. Everyone can make everybody's life a lot more pleasant. Obviously, it only takes one person to crap in the Lido for the whole swimming pool to be shut. It's not that I disagree <laughs> with that, but why should it... It feels quite, don't be offended, pull yourself together, is what you're saying. The idea that this is even strange or foreign, it shows how far we've gone in the wrong direction, I think. I think we should be confident about talking about ideas on their own merit. I think, I think it is relevant whether you're from a, you know, a community that has faced a history of oppression or being slighted or being subject to racism and bigotry or whether you're not. So in a way, I do think whether you're I, I sort of not sure. But of course, because that's part of your whole experience yeah. and that's something that you can discuss whilst discussing an idea. But that is, again, separate to whether or not you're offended. Okay. That's well, it's all. provoked discussion. It has. All right. Uh, what's your next one? I think that there should be some relationship between the maximum amount one person can accrue and the national average income. So I believe in inequality. I think we all love seeing someone homeless begging outside baby Dior. I don't think that you can enforce equality of outcome, but I do think that there should be less of a hoarding mentality amongst the uber rich. So a really good example is Bill Gates, who's apparently as of this morning worth $97.8 billion, which is considerably more than most countries' yeah. GDP. And Everyone says, oh, he's such a good guy, but he's a free guy. So why does, he have to, why does he have to be good? Why does he have to be nice? So I don't see why a person should be able to accrue that much money on the premise that, oh, well, they're a nice bloke. Who cares? It shouldn't be relevant whether or not somebody's nice. No one should be able to accrue that much money unless it's in relation to the national income of their country. So the way my idea would work is this, because don't forget, I'm in favor of capitalism and I'm celebrating greed. So in this country, for example, the current national average wage is £27,600, apparently. And I'm saying, if, you're, if you want to be really rich and you're successful, good for you. You can have a thousand times that, which is 27.6 million. And I'm saying, if that's not enough, just double it. So you can have 55.2 million pounds in cash and assets. But no more. You can keep on earning, but after you've earned that much, you've got to give it away. You can give it away to friends. You can give it away to causes. So it's like a maximum wage. Some people talk about maximum wages. Yeah. It's a maximum but you wealth. Can, no, you can still keep it. Yeah, maximum assets. and you can So still, say use it or lose it. Yeah, you're going to spread it about um, a bit. Yeah, so after that bit, you have to basically distribute your power. Yeah. Now, obviously, if you want to have in cash and assets more than 55.2 yeah. million, it's dead easy. You all can put you it have offshore. to. No, all you have well, of course, but that's, that's your job to fix those loopholes. Right, okay. Um, but all you could actually do, even quicker than putting it offshore, yeah. maybe not quicker, but you could, let's say, encourage the living wage, putting up the national average income to, let's ah, say, £30,000 a year, more. and then you can have another 10 million. So 
you can accrue loads more just by creeping up the lowest, lowest pay from like £8 to £10 to £11. You get another five, six million quid. So you've got a vested interest got a vested in making interest. things better for people at the bottom. Yeah, which obviously would make the whole country richer anyway because people would be spending more money. And because you have to spend the money over your £55.2 million, that's putting a lot of money into the economy. And it's also spreading your power base around between your family or your your you know, your enemies, your exes, your children. So there's more money going into the into the system. Does that qualify for the Jeffocracy? I think so, but how many people are there that are worth over fifty million? Would it quite, be quite too it... many? Right. And obviously some of the people that do have a lot more than fifty five million, they have a lot more than fifty five million. I think right. you know, it's really interesting your thing about, you know, Bill Gates shouldn't get a free pass just because he gives some orbs a significant proportion of his money away. I think I think it's true. Because I think that's kind of what a lot of these wealthy entrepreneurs sort of rely on is they sort of you know they make their money a certain way which is quite sort of monopolistic and you know what i mean and like then the they sackless say, and how then, many how many more opioid say, deaths can you have in the u.s uh, and before they, someone says and then they say oh you know but we're giving a lot of it away as if that's sort of okay as if that kind of but according to my it. method it would be okay they would just have to give away another in this instance bill 97 gates. billion pounds <laughs> yeah, that's true <laughs> well and he, he can still earn it well if bill gates is it. listening i'm not sure he's going to sort of immediately kind of Bring you in as an advisor, Tim. <laughs> and what's what's your last idea, Tanya? I generally think that there should be fewer rules and people should just crack on. But I do have one thing that would create automatic prison, and this is my most important idea, and this is what I'd like to end with. I think you should automatically go to prison if you eat hot food on public transport. I mean, you sound almost offended by the hot food. No, I'm not offended. <laughs> and if I, if I was, that would discredit my view. But um, I do think it's selfish, yeah. Uh, Tanya, if people want to come and see you, where can they? Uh, where I can promise they see not you? to talk about any of this stuff either. My show, I tell jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a show at Soho Theatre actually on the 22nd of October, which is a Monday, so you can't possibly be busy. You should come to that. Definitely. Tanya, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This is Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Great show. I'd like to thank Michael Jacobs and Sarah Bryson. And Tanya Edwards. And you can see Tanya at the Soho Theatre in London. Emma Caution produces our podcast. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the eye dance. Ed Seed composed the music. And the artwork was designed by... Emily Power. He's been Axe Directory. He's been the Baron. <laughs> and these have been... Reasons to be Cheerful. Reasons to be Cheerful.